talk. We're going to continue in this idea of the revolutionary rescue today as Jim is stuck with me. Like it or not, here's, here's how it comes. Um, and the, today, the discussion is really the return of or the uh, reinvigoration, a big fancy word, of the glory the glory of God. And I think it's, it's interesting because Jim has talked about last week, it was the kingdom, the return of the kingdom. He talked about uh, the, just so many different things being put back together. Next week, we'll actually talk about the king himself returning on Palm Sunday. But in here, we're talking about the glory. And you might have some questions about what in the world does that even mean? Uh, glory is is intriguing, I think. There's a story about a kindergarten story, uh, teacher, maybe it was our own Courtney Laszlo, who sees a, a little girl who's coloring feverishly, and there's all of these things going on in her paper, and she says to the little girl, so what is that you're coloring? And she says, well, I'm drawing a picture of God. And so the little girl, you know, is, is still feverishly working. The teacher says, wow, that's amazing. Look at all of those sparkly colors and everything else. But she said, so how do you know? I, I don't think we know what God looks like. How do you know what God looks like? And uh, people just have always wondered that. How, what does God look like? And the little girl, without even looking up, said, well, give me a minute and I'll show you. You know, it's a <laughs> so I don't know what's going on in the whole process, but I know when I think about the idea of glory and of God and connecting those things, it's like, well, there's some things we can learn and there's some questions that I wonder, and I bet you might wonder them with me as well. So I'm going to ask us some questions together. First of all, what's the big deal about the glory? So we heard about the glory in the tabernacle, the uh, fire and the smoke and the, everything else that's going on, the light. And then we go, so what in the world was that? What was happening there? What's the actual essence behind that? Then it goes away after some time. The ark is carried away. And then it comes back when Solomon dedicates the temple. It comes into the glory and such power that uh, it comes into the temple. Jim was talking about it and he said, you know, they couldn't even, the priests couldn't even go inside because of the glory. Well, what in the world is that? What difference does it make? What's the big deal? When it left, it left before the Israelites were actually taken away into captivity about 600 BC. And as far as we know, it never came back in that same way. So what was the big deal there? What was going on? And would the glory ever come back? Is it just about power and about amazing things and lightning going off? Or is it about flashy colors like the girl was drawn in her picture? You know, what's it all about? What is it? So I did some research and it was very interesting to me to find out how much about the glory of God is in a place that I did not expect it. If I was going to say to you, I did a bunch of research and I found a whole bunch of verses about the glory of God, what book would you think that I would find that in? Revelation. Revelation. That's a really good guess. There is a bunch in there. What else? Exodus. Interesting. Psalms, for sure. There's all kinds of psalms about the glory of God. Do you know what book in the Old Testament has the most information about the glory of God? Isaiah. So let's look at Isaiah. We're going to, if you want to, get those Bibles in front of you, if you've got one on your personal electronic device or what have you, or we're going to put it up on the screen. This up on the screen is NIV, and I'm going to read it to you in ESV. So there's a little, you have to kind of think about it a little bit together. It helps you sort it out. Uh, the ESV is usually a little more uh, wooden, a little more true to the Hebrew and in its structure. 
And then the NIV is more readable. So sometimes you'll go, wait, well, that's what's going on. I just want you to have to work through it. Isaiah chapter 4 is where we're going to start. We're going to plow through here. Again, I'm going to skip over dozens of passages so that we can get at some of the essence of what is this glory? What is it really all about? Um, Verse 2 of chapter 4 says this, And that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. What are survivors? What is that day? Well, again, they're being carried off to captivity. A bunch of them are already gone, as Isaiah is starting this book. And that day is when God finalizes the whole judgment and puts it back together. And the survivors are talked about. He's who's left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from his midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. Remember that. Because the very last passage we're going to read is also going to talk about judgment. And it's connected to glory. May not be what you expected. Then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies, listen to this, a cloud by day, smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory there will be a canopy. So that sounds just like what they experienced in the temple and in the tabernacle, a physical representation that they could see. When I hang those lights up around Christmas time that go across here, it's the idea of a canopy. Augustine had this beautiful image of the Bible being a canopy that is stretched over the length of our history as human beings. This is just always there. And so that's like a reminder of the canopy of the glory of God. Go to chapter 6, which is just a couple of pages. This is the famous call of Isaiah. You've heard this passage a bunch of times in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, chapter 6, 1, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He was high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were the seraphim. They had six wings. Two, they covered their eyes or their face. They covered their feet and then they flew. And here's what they said. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord God of hosts. That tribe may be related to the Trinity. It might be. Some believe that in saying that three times. The whole earth is full of his glory. So this, what is he talking about? Something in this amazing image of the throne room of God. It comes up again in Revelation when the Lamb is introduced into the throne room. There's this amazing sense of glory. That sounds like it is visibly stunning. And we know that because Isaiah falls right on his face as soon as he sees it. Right? Go to chapter 24. Again, I'm skipping over a bunch of things. Isaiah 24, in those pages, I'm not sure exactly what page it is in those Bibles. I'm sorry, I should have gotten that. But Isaiah 24, verse 13 says this, Thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. So with the, they would whack the branches and the olives fall, and that's how they... So nobody's in trouble here. It's just to get the fruit off of there. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west and from the east, from the coastlands of the sea. They come from everywhere to give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth we hear songs of praise of glory to the righteous one. What's going on here? These are all the nations that, that experience the prosperity, the life-giving love and grace of God, and they come to give glory to God because He's worthy of it. 
Look right out there, and you understand some of what's going on. By the way, those chairs from about halfway back, those are, they cost double the chairs in the front because of that view now. Now, after, we, after we've opened that up, look how spectacular that is. When people say to you that they experience God in nature, they experience His glory, that's true. You should too. But you might even have some more depth of insight in what's going on. It's not just like a spiritual experience. It's God, right? That's what's happening. Go to 28, Isaiah 28, just a page or two, verse 5. In that day, again, we talked about that, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory, a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and strength to those who turn back to the battle at the gate. Here's what you hear. For those who are left over, God starts putting justice in place. Glory is found in the fact that things are right. They make sense. They work. That's a big part of what glory... God has in store for us. Verse, excuse me, chapter 40, the famous comfort passage, a couple pages over 40, verse 1. Every time I hear this, I want to sing the comfort ye, right? You can hear this every time I hear this. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. And a voice cries, who does this remind you of? In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley will be lifted up and every mountain will be made low and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places become a plain. That sounds like who? John the Baptist. That's the, the description of what is this about? This is about the barriers are coming down. The glory is found in the fact that there's access we don't have to work so hard to uh, find God and get access to God. It's, all those barriers are pulled apart. And the glory of the Lord is revealed, and the flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Chapter 43, a page or two there, in verse 1. And we're going to... But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, Jacob, formed you, Israel. So he's talking to his people... Fear not, I've redeemed you, I've called you by name, you're mine, because you're precious in my eyes and honored, I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life, fear not, I'm with you. Do you hear what this is about? This is about your identity is totally secure in me, I'm here. I'll bring your offspring for the east, west, from the north and the south, don't Hold them back, my daughters, from coming in, and my sons. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I made for that purpose. You see what this is about? This is about God actually getting an actual purpose in place to have a people. Glory is found in the fact that there's great purpose in the existence. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. God gave it to you. Chapter 6, a couple pages over. Verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. How many of you love it when the sun first comes up? This is what this reminds me of. I've sat in Sunshine Cafe a bunch of times, and I'm sitting at a table, and all of a sudden the sun peeks over the dam, and it's like, whoa, right? Because <laughs> it's amazing, the power of that thing. The energy, the light, the, I mean, all of a sudden you're like, I can't even look, right? That's what the sum of the glory is about. It's amazing. And that's just the sun. 
It's not God. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness over the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you. His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Here's the thing. Even though it's hard to look into, it's attractive. It's life-giving. There's nothing like being up somewhere high where it's cold in the morning and you're trying to summit a 14er or something and that sun comes and you're just like, Oh, praise Jesus, <laughs> right? It feels so good as the warmth hits you and you're like, ah. So the nations will actually be coming for life-giving something that they see. In chapter 6, now we talked all the way back in chapter 4 at the beginning about the judgment, and now at the very end, these are almost the last words of the book of Isaiah. Chapter 66, verse 15, and then we're going to kind of pick a couple others out. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, Isaiah 66. The chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury, his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire, boy, there's a lot of fire in here. The Lord will enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Is this happy? I'm sorry, no. Part of the glory is, that's enough of sin. It's done. No more. Um, Stop and think about that. We tend to think of glory as, in fact, many people confuse the gospel of Jesus. And all they hear is the nice Jesus who was tolerant to everyone and loved everyone and was kind to everybody and pet dogs and was, you know, uh, good to the fish and everything else. The truth is, Jesus, the final revelation is this kind of language. The final revelation of Jesus is full of, that's enough of the sin. We're going to end that. Righteousness is what's going to happen. And a lot of people die. We should never forget that. For no, they, they know their works and their, I know their works and their thoughts, God says. The time is coming to gather all the nations, all the tongues. They'll see my glory. I'll set a sign upon them. From them I will send survivors to the nations. And they'll have heard of my fame and seen my glory. And they'll declare my glory among the nations. You hear what's going on? Everybody, it doesn't matter what you think is your preferred method. Or your model of religion. God is not going to have time to sit around and parse everything out. He's going to say, that's enough of that. We're now going to all get it. That's part of glory. It's part of glory. It's not the happy part, but it is part. We can't forget that. Some of the things that we learned in here, first of all, the core message is the mission of God. It's to bring purpose, an intrinsic sense of value, an actual job to do that's related to glory. It's not just a bunch of flash-in-the-pan stuff. Second of all, it's tangible, and it's a time, Jim said it this way, I loved it, I wrote it down when he said it, it's when heaven and earth come into unity with each other. There's a connection. They're not exactly the same. There's not a conformity. There's a unity, which sounds, by the way, just like the church of Jesus Christ when the Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit is an agent of unity to bring a sense of, okay, there is now a, we're in this together. We're on the same page. And there's a manifestation that shows up to show that. It's not just showing off. And of course, don't forget 
that judgment's a big part of it. If you're going to sum up the Bible in a simple sentence, it was there was glory for about 10 minutes, and then there's a fall, glory is lost, and then a slow trajectory of redemption for God to restore glory. It's glory, glory lost, glory restored. That's the Bible. That's what it tells us. And we got to read the whole thing, all of the revelations. So I asked this question. I'm going to throw this in right here. Because obviously the prophets, and so much more is in Ezekiel, Daniel, everywhere else about the glory of God. They gave us a picture, a full picture of what glory is all about. Has it ever bugged you that God wants to bring glory to himself? Has that ever bothered you? Has it ever felt a little self-serving for God to say, so bring the glory? You know, you guys, many of you could quote the Westminster Catechism, right? What's the purpose of man? To bring glory to God and to enjoy his glory for all eternity, right? Doesn't that sound a little self-serving? There's even a proverb in 25, 27. It says, it's not good to eat a lot of honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. Can we even quote a Bible verse to God and say, wait, what do you mean the glory is all about you? What's going on here? Let's think of an illustration from what we just have had experience in the Olympics. So in the medal ceremony, there's a whole lot of glory going on, right? A great deal of glory. What's the difference between that glory and the glory that we're talking about with God? There's a couple of distinctives. First of all, the glory for an Olympic athlete is pretty fleeting, their history may be written down. We may remember some of them, Eric Hyden and uh, you know, Michael Phelps who had all these or whatever else. But it typically is pretty fleeting experience. Second of all, it's pretty exploitative. The sponsors, Toyota was hoping to make a lot of money off of the gold medal ceremony. Let's face it. And the people who are winning the golds are hoping to make a lot of money off the gold, Right? Pretty exploitative. The third thing and the most important thing is nobody gets to give themselves a medal. Have you ever seen anybody go up on the stand and like, oh, actually, I'll take that. Thank you very much. I deserve the gold medal. No, you don't, actually. Somebody else decided there's other rules of engagement and somebody else has to have the authority to bestow upon you the gold medal. You don't get to give it to yourself. In God's case... His glory is totally worthy of him giving it to himself. But you know what he chose to do? He chose to go. God, instead of just saying, well, I'm just going to sit around and revel in my own glory, I'm actually going to create creatures not just to get glory from them. They'll be happy to do that once they figure out that I have actually given glory to them. And that's creation. In creation, the whole story of us being image bearers is that we're reflecting the glory of God to the universe. We're given jobs to do, bring life on the planet, bring order to chaos, and in that, reflect my glory like I just told you about in my creation. It's an amazing exchange. It is way less, in fact, we wouldn't even know about it if God hadn't designed glory to be something that he gives to his creatures so that they can reflect back to him. We wouldn't even know about it. 
John said it this way, the word became flesh, dwelt among us in chapter one. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son. So how did this, what's the vehicle? The actual vehicle of glory is Christ. This is why it's such a revolution. It's so revolutionary. Who in the world would have thought to have a human being be the conduit of the glory of God? Only God came up with that. He became one of us. When he became flesh and dwelt among us, he reflected his glory. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. Not just one grace, but exponential layers of grace that have been given to us from God, which is his glory given to us, and then we give the glory back. And that's a completely different exchange than God just showing off. Does that make sense to you? Now, here's the other question that I want to ask in a couple of minutes. How in the world did these things become such an image of glory? I mean, it's just a stick. There's three of them here. There might have been 20 on the hill that day. I don't know. We don't know that for sure. But I have a couple because Jenny and I have a cross collection. I like this when it's made out of bristle cone. And it just reminds me of the age, you know, and like the agelessness. Uh, who knows how old this tree was. I love this one because it's so plain and simple. Anybody guess where I got that? In Haiti. It's like perfect for Haiti. It's not flashy. It's not a bunch of razzmatazz. This one I made several years ago. Um, it's super lightweight. Anybody know what this is, this material? It's actually the spine of a sahuaro cactus. When they die, they fall over, but their, their spines are almost like wood. It's super lightweight. feels almost like balsa, but you should see all of the patterns in here. And I remember the thorns when I see this cross. So how did this become a symbol of glory when it was like the most shame-based process in the history of the world? The Romans even gave up, gave up on that because it was so brutal. Romans said that's, that's a terrible way for somebody to die. Jesus landed in a little period of about 40-some years that the Romans were using crucifixion as a regular process to, to uh, execute people. And instead of Jesus just saying, well, somebody just cut my arms so I bleed, and then I'm going to die in my sleep with the birds singing, Jesus suffered the most unbelievably horrible thing. He didn't even just become flesh and dwell among us. He then got on the cross and it has become a symbol of glory. Unbelievable. We take that for granted. Nobody saw that coming. Nobody could have predicted that. And yet, that was the plan for Jesus to enter in. Why? Because of participation. Jesus came all the way in, and the way the writers of the New Testament describe it is he actually got into the worst-case scenario that we could possibly experience, so he knew what we experienced. It qualified him to be someone that nobody else in history could be because he didn't deserve a second of it, and yet he did that on our behalf. Have you ever thought the thought that maybe the greatest glory of God is not a newborn baby, which is glorious. It's not a sunset 
or we don't see sunsets here, or a sunrise that hits those mountains in the morning. It's not that. It's not the ocean. It was Christ on the cross. You talk about revolutionary. Changes the whole equation. The whole story is like, oh, he'll do that? He did that? There's a, a story of, you know, somebody trying to figure this thing out, I guess. But it was a, an archbishop that tells the story of the fact that um, there's a priest who's in the confessional and three kind of young teenagers decide to come in and mess with the priest. So what they're going to do is they're going to one by one go into the confessional and confess like the most horrible sins you can imagine. Like they're trying to invent things to call sin. So the first one goes in and says a bunch of things. The priest is kind of stunned. Second one kind of goes through and he says, and then the priest is starting to get the clue. So the third one goes in. The other two are gone, long gone, as you can imagine. Third one goes in and the priest comes around outside and brings him out of the confessional and walks him up to the front of the church. And you know, often in a Catholic church, there's a cross with Christ on it in the front. So the priest said to him, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look up right in the eyes of Jesus, and I want you to say, you did all of that for me, but I don't care that much about it. And I want you to do that three times. So the kid, feeling the pressure of the priest, right, goes, and the first time he kind of goes through it, and he, you know, does the snap, and he kind of feels it, but he's kind of just responding. The second time he goes through it, he's starting, it's starting to dawn on him what he's saying. And I don't care that much. The third time, he can't say it. And it, it breaks him. And the reason that that story is true is because the archbishop said, I was that kid. I was affected by the glory in the horror of the cross. That's revolutionary. Nobody, nobody in history has accomplished that kind of message. Nobody but Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, consider the glory. We consider what uh, you told us, what you showed us. We consider the, the connection of the glory to the cross. And we want to be affected by it. So affect our hearts and minds. Maybe the best takeaway, the best um, uh, application today is a change of our heart and our mind, our posture towards you. To have experienced the glory in what you've given to us by coming and participating with us. Um, Jennifer understands her pain and suffering today. She understands that. The writers of the New Testament said to us, they gloried in the cross. They gloried when they got to suffer alongside of you because they understood how that was actually part of the glory of who you are to us and your love and your grace. So thank you for all of the aspects. Thank you for bringing revolution to our world. We pray that in your name. Amen.